0: Hey, my name is Jordan Standup, I'm the assistant editor here at Yeriwaze, and you're listening to The Lead, a show which is dedicated to news and events in and around Kahnawake. In this episode, we go in-depth on Moha Council of Gonawage election results, we also discuss some of the developments regarding residential schools across the country, we also discuss some of the news and events making headlines in Gonawage over the past several weeks. I'm joined today by editor-publisher Greg Horn and our staff writer, Mark Lalone. So how are you guys doing today? Not too bad, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing really well. And you, Mark? I'm doing fantastic, Jordan. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. That is excellent news. So it's been another couple of busy weeks here in Kahnawake, but especially because it's election season. Uh, The Mohawk Council of Kahnawake elections took place this past Saturday, and Greg, I know you were there for the majority of the day. So I don't know
1: if you want to tell us a little bit about uh, some of what you saw and felt that day. Well, you know, the, the, the election campaign has been going on, I think, for the past six weeks or so. You know, and, and we did a lot of coverage uh, both in print and here on our podcast. You know, I got there, I don't know, maybe about 930 in the morning, talked to a, a few people. You know, there was some candidates hanging around, uh, people getting ready to go and vote. And because of the pandemic and the, the public health, Restrictions that have been in place uh, in in the community since March of uh, twenty twenty, a new venue had to be taken into account this year instead of the, the usual uh, venue at uh, Greenhua School. So this this year was at the Kanaga Sports Complex, and uh, there was a line to get in. Earlier in the day, it was it was quite a long lineup. It was uh, the line was uh, from the doors to get into the, the the arena itself, the inside doors to get to where where the rink is out the door and down the steps into the parking lot if you were waiting out there uh, it was probably about a 45 minute wait uh, to get through the whole process once you got into the building at the top of the stairs uh, you were then sent down onto the rink floor where you were you you put in one of six lines which then led to one of six voting stations, right? So uh, you know it was it was quite long line uh, lineups. Uh, it looked longer than it was because of the social distancing that needed to take place. That you had to be six feet apart, uh, and then you had to go up one by one to the to each of the, the polling stations. So it was quite a long task, I think, especially if you were there during the busy type uh, parts of the day. And you've
0: been covering elections for as long as you've been involved with journalism, Greg. And this year we knew that we were going to have a new Grand Chief and we had five nominees throw their hat in the ring. So could you talk a little bit more about the the race for Grand Chief?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, there was uh, it, it was quite interesting, I think. I don't think it was an easy decision for a lot of uh, the community's voters being, uh, you know, there's there's three three current mck chiefs that that have all been doing some very good things uh, over over their tenure on council one newcomer who 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 came in uh and you know from the business world uh, looking looking at getting elected and uh one f- former uh, mck chief and who's run for grand chief uh in the past so you know there's five candidates and I think that that really, you, you know, knew, you knew that there was going to be a change uh, right away. I mean, because because there's, there's five candidates for Grand Chief, three of them are sitting council chiefs, so that opens up three seats for sure on council, and then you're looking at losing two of those, those people, right? You know, throughout the campaign, uh, Gus Guy-Deer, Gus Guy-Deer, who, who, who ended up winning with 580-something votes. Yes, uh, something something like that, like around those numbers. Yeah. Uh and then uh, runner-up uh, Gina Deer with uh, three forty-nine. Yeah, you uh, know well, three eighty. It was it was, was it about two hundred. Okay, it was about, about two hundred less. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then Frankie McCumber who 344. was three forty-four, followed by Sterling Deer with sixty-six, 66. and Keith Mayo with thirty-six. Yeah. Um, you know it was
2: it was quite the. It's a real five way race, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and, and you know it was it, it was very interesting, and there's going to be a big shape shake up, I think, at council. Both Frank and Gina were were portfolio chiefs on economic development. Uh, Frank held public safety. Gina, she had two other uh, portfolios uh, as well. So there's five new council chiefs, and I think that with those new council chiefs, they, they got some big big shoes to fill because Clinton Phillips is retired. Rhonda Kirby did not, was not successful in her, re, uh, her bid for reelection, And then, of course, replacing on council Gus, Gus Guy Deere, Frank McCumber, and Gina Deere. So, you know, it's going to be, a, as we're recording right now, they're, they're in their first official uh, Monday council meeting. And, uh, you know, they're going to go through a period of orientation and decide where how the portfolios are going to be divided up. And Greg, you were also actually on the floor when
0: the uh, results were were read off from the election. So could you tell us maybe who was in the building around that time and what kind of feeling is it in the building as people are
1: waiting for these election results to be revealed? People started getting back to the uh, the Gunawai Sports Club because around 1030 or so uh, that uh, Saturday evening and people were just outside waiting to hear results and not knowing because because this is, again, a different a whole different venue uh than than we are used to right and normally what happens is uh the, the electoral officer comes out with uh, with everybody who was the scrutineers uh to come outside out, out the front of the and and the results are read this time the local media were we were called and 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 brought inside allowed on the floor uh and then all the community members who were outside were 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 then permitted to come in and gather at the top of the by the railing on top of the, at the arena and then angus Montour from the floor read out the results and uh and he started off with the race for for grand chief and uh when when he announced that uh gus Nahoy was the 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 winner uh the the place erupted in in applause like like we were at a lacrosse game and a, a goal was scored wow and mark um i also wanted to ask
0: you about you did a lot of election coverage for us here as well um as an outsider looking in covering our elections what level of interest does does that hold for you normally
2: if you weren't a journalist working with us well i mean as a journalist i'm a political junkie so this was one of the more interesting races i've ever had to cover in any community that i've ever worked in because there was no front runner there was no okay that person is probably going to get it we'd speculated around the office around who might win and we had a lot of blind speculation and we really had no idea. And when, when Gus won and um, history was made in terms of Kahnawake's first female grand chief, I think that that's a, it's a, it's an excellent step forward. It's a real piece of progress. And I think that I'm, I'm pretty excited to see how she coalesces because when I interviewed her, we spoke a few weeks ago and my feeling was of, all the people I interviewed, she seemed to be the one most interested in bringing people together as opposed to separating them and dividing them. So that was the impression I got, and that didn't change throughout the campaign. So I'm not entirely surprised. In my mind, after I'd interviewed all five candidates, I felt like she was one of the stronger ones and not entirely surprised.
0: And Greg, you had the opportunity to speak with each of the candidates also in the weeks leading up to the elections, which means that you've spoken to the the new chiefs that will be joining the uh, the council table. So, what are some of your thoughts on this injection of of youth into the
1: table, if you will? Every year, right? Uh, every time we have an election, there, there's always talks about uh, making a change and getting new blood in there. And there's always there's always some changeover. There's never it's never the same exact council. And uh, this time, we knew there was going to be some some big changes because of Clinton Phillips not running, and with the three candidates for for grand chief, three of the candidates for grand Chief being uh sitting council chiefs, so four or five uh four or five new chiefs is usually a big turnover. You know this is you know one of the years that i I had thought that there was going to be uh all the the, the sitting the council chiefs who were running. I thought they were all going to get reelected, and uh we'd have four new council chiefs. I was surprised that, that there was five new chiefs and one council member did not get reelected. That 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 was a, a surprise to me, but the the new chiefs who got elected, I wasn't I wasn't surprised that, that those were the ones who were who were reelected because, uh, throughout their campaign, throughout the interviews that that we did, either I did through our podcast or or, or one of you two guys did uh, for for the the paper, they're all talking about that we need to, 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 there needs to be more transparency, uh, from the council table to the community. There needs to be certain issues addressed, including the housing issue and the lack of affordable housing in the community. Mm-hmm. Things like, uh, you, you know, we need to look at strengthening our language and culture. And, and, and that was one of the big things that Kassanahoe was, was talking about, uh, you know, has always talked about, uh, before, You know, being elected as Grand Chief is is that we need to to strengthen our identity of who we are. And language and culture is a big part of that. So there's a lot there was a lot of surprises, but there was also some some things that weren't very surprising.
0: And like you had mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, Greg, as we're recording this, a lot of those uh, new chiefs are getting their their feet wet, so to speak, as we're doing this this right now. With that being said, we're going to move along into a, a topic that I think is, is difficult for, for everybody to discuss, which is uh, residential schools, but more specifically to the discovery of uh, mass graves at residential schools. It's been out everywhere. Everybody is talking about it. It's all over on, on social media. And last week, there was even a, a rolling uh, blockade that was organized here in the
1: community, I think we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the start, right? At the end of May, it was the news broke in uh, Kamloops, British Columbia. At the end of May, that, that the community government of the Shuswap Nation had paid for uh, ground penetrating radar study at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School and found that there was, now, it wasn't a mass grave, but it was unmarked grave, uh, grave sites of 215 students, children, uh, and some children as young as, as three years old. Were discovered on those grounds, and those were all undocumented deaths because there, there, there were documented deaths at about three thousand document documented deaths at uh, residential schools uh, throughout the the history of the system, according to some statistics. That there was fifty reported deaths at the Kamloops Indian Residential School, so. These are being considered as undocumented deaths. So these are 215 children that that their parents never knew what happened to them, right? So that sparked some immediate anger and fury from uh, Indigenous people right across Canada. You know, the for the by and large, the the federal government's response to this this anger and 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 rage uh, coming from Indigenous people was. Uh, along the lines of thoughts and prayers, and uh, and not very concrete actions, uh, you know, and the actions that they've done uh, in the past month have, have amounted to the very minimal and tone deaf types
2: of of responses. Yeah, it's been literal lip service.
1: Yeah, I mean, like the 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 one thing that they, you know they they, were, they, were, they had a big press conference that they were touting is uh, you know we're we're implementing one aspect of the truth and reconciliation commission's call to actions and that one was was allowing the Canadian government is, is allowing indigenous people to have their their indig- indigenous names on passports and other official government documents like but Greg don't you already have your indigenous name on your passport already I have my 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 mohawk name is on my bank card mm-hmm. and uh you know for for most people especially most people born in the last 30 years you know, some people uh, in Kahnawaga, in people don't have English names. So, so it's already there. So this is not just, it It, it was. It's when,
2: literally the least they could do.
1: Yeah. No, well, it was the least that they could do was lowering flags. Yeah. And, 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 and that's <laughs> what point. they did. That's what
2: they did. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and then this, this was, if this is their idea of concrete action, it's, you know. It's, it's a horror. joke. Yeah. It's a
2: little bit. It's a joke. Yeah.
1: You know, and, and then it's, it, and these are things that we we've, we've known, like these are, are stories that our family members who've been to these schools have told us that yes, we've seen our classmates get killed and, 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 uh, something happened and uh, little Timmy never, never came back. We never seen them again and we never knew what happened and we weren't allowed to ask about them. You know? So these are things that we we've known have been happening and during the whole truth and reconciliation commission. Those stories came out and and Canadians by and large didn't either weren't paying attention or, or didn't think it was a big deal. But now, you know, starting with Kamloops with with 215, and then now you, there's more and more. So there's there's over 1,500 of these unmarked graves being discovered, and 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 more to come. Right? It's gonna continue happening because there was 139 of these schools throughout Canada, and I'm sure every one of them had graves like gravesites like this. Those are some really great
0: points, Greg and uh, Mark, I was, as Greg mentioned something earlier about uh, how the Canadian public uh, responded or what they even knew about residential schools. So what did you know about residential schools before you really started to to cover it? What sort of things
2: did you learn about it? Yeah, it's been a, a real steep learning curve for me as a non-Native, non-Indigenous person in Canada. And uh, I sort of get quiet these days when I when I think about Sort of those situations because I'm like, I'm one, it's new to me, and I'm horrified. I'm a parent of two. If somebody walked into my house with a gun and said, We're taking your children away to a school to change them, to change their language, to change their culture, to change the way they dress, to change everything they do. Oh, and by the way, they may never ever come home. The thought, Greg, Jordan, gives me chills. I'm, I'm horrified. And I think that we've reached a tipping point in the non-indigenous population in Canada, where there is finally a little bit of a groundswell to find out how many kids are there. And I think that, uh, that would be supported by the non-indigenous population. And frankly, it's, uh, it's not enough, and it's come way too late. And like you
0: were talking about a little bit earlier, Greg, there are indigenous people across the country. It sparked uh, some outrage, a variety of emotions. And in the community, the community members responded almost immediately by placing shoes in front of the St. Francis Xavier Church.
1: Yeah, you know, and that that was, I mean, I think uh, the news reached here on 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 a Friday morning, Friday afternoon, by saturday morning there was uh, hundreds of shoes placed in front of the the church and over the next few days it it just got bigger and bigger right and then people wanting to do things and and just because it affects everybody and and while i was there taking pictures on the first day uh one community member uh you know put put his, his a pair of boots there and he said you know i'm putting this here because this could have been me you mm-hmm. know i, I mean you know, the residential school system uh, lasted from, started in 1831 and lasted until 1996. And I think some of the, the rage that people have is because governments, educators, the average Canadian who doesn't know much about this is like, oh, well, this is ancient history. You know, we don't need to cancel Canada Day because it's, uh, you know, this is something that happened way in the past. no. This like the people who who did this to these to these children, by and large, uh, you know, there's, there's there's people who are still alive today that, that that committed these atrocities, and they need to be called to justice, right? Uh, and that's the reality: is that you know these were crimes, and that were committed by individuals, yes, but those individuals represented the church, and the church who committed these atrocities were paid to do them by the government. You know the, the the school system was administered by the federal government, and and it was policy, it was federal government policy to to remove indigenous children from their homes and send them to, to these schools to quote unquote civilize them. You know any other country that this, that would do this something like this, Canada would be like, no, that's genocide, we can't stand for it. The mm-hmm. U.S. would be no, they, the U.S. would be sending bombs in,
2: right? And you know here it's just uh, thoughts and prayers. Right. For all Canada's talk about human rights and, and all that stuff on the world stage, the atrocities that have com- been committed here are no better. And uh, they don't have a moral leg to stand on.
1: Yeah. And Canada touts itself on the international stage mm. of being this great place. and This, this, this utopia of This multiculturalism, multicultural utopia. Yeah. And, and, and if you're a non-native person and you're not a person of color... Or any other of the minorities, then yeah, it's probably true that Canada is a great place to to live, but if you're you're an indigenous person then then no, that's not your reality, right? Like this coming weekend we're we're looking at thirty one years since the the start of 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 the so called Oka crisis where we were trying to stop the development of a golf course over the graveyard of the community of cataloggan, not an ancient burial ground, the way the media was depicting it at the time, but a graveyard where the community laid to rest their their loved ones in in what other community would that be acceptable, right? Do you think the 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 town of Mount Royal could just say, okay, well, we we want to build a build a golf course and and some condos and we're going to, we're going to bulldoze this, 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 this 200 year old graveyard. cemetery. Yeah. 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 You
2: know, that's not that, you know, the, the, it would the, be unacceptable. The public would lose their minds and it's, 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 but I think it's part and parcel with, um, you, we're talk we're, we're, we're talking about the, this is an indigenous owned, this is an indigenous community media. When we're talking about, when we're talking about the mainstream media, you have historically seen Indigenous people slough to the side, you have routinely seen them dehumanized I, I honestly think it's about time we shine a little bit of light on some of the mystery yeah, and, 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 and 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 the mainstream
1: media you went to journalism school mm-hmm. you worked you worked outside of mm-hmm. of the community uh and you know the old mantra if it, if it bleeds it leads and and you know and and that's the that's the case right for mm-hmm. a lot for a lot of things, but for for the last thirty years, forty years, the only time the mainstream media cared about what was
2: happening in Indigenous communities when it was bad and when it when it affected non-Indigenous people in a bad way. Exactly,
1: and it's getting better where they're where they're now reporting about the good things that are happening. Mm-hmm. But it's still not where it needs to be. And and no, agreed. And I think we're 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 getting to a place where this past week and you know all the all the major media outlets in the, in the Montreal area were here covering the. Covering, covering the election. election and, you know, and, and different things. So it's, it, it's getting better, but
2: it's a start. Yeah. But it's not where
1: we're not where we need to be. No. And Greg, you were mentioning uh, Oka crisis earlier,
0: and that takes us into some land issues. And there are some interesting developments as of late regarding the Mohawk Nation at gunawage and some land reclamation. I know that you've been working toward that.
1: Yes. June 24th, the Kahnawake Nation at gunawage issued a press release saying that it was against. A housing development in Chattagee earlier this year, a zoning change was made uh, for parcel of land that's adjacent to to Kahnawake in Chattagee that would allow for a residential development of two hundred and ninety houses, semi-detached houses, and row houses. This development is right within land that that's traditionally been considered uh, Mohawk land is actually a part of the MCK's senior associate Louis land Grief, and that's been under negotiation for the last twenty years with the federal government, that's not gone anywhere. So the the land that, that in question is at the end of the Old Chatigie Road. It's adjacent to what's called Parcel E, and Parcel E is one of the pieces of land that has been uh, that that has returned to to Ganawage in the early two thousands or mid two thousands when the Highway 30 project was being constructed, Quebec recognized that it was removing 790 acres of land from within the scenery land claim and agreed that they would return that much land to the community. It was immediately identified that there was the land from the existing boundary to Highway, highway 30 and Highway 730 uh, surrounding Ganawage would return to the community. As official return to reserve status, that totaled about 400 acres. There's still 300 or so acres that needed to be identified. Uh, one of those parcels was parcel E, which is at the western edge of the community at the end of Old Old Chedicke Road. So so this land has actually, I think in the last couple of years, been formally returned. But then right adjacent to it is land that, that's not developed in Cherokee, that that's now, I don't know if there's actually a housing developer and there's or there's a plan, but there's, the zoning has changed to allow for it to happen. The Mohawk Nation at Kahnawake, uh issued a, a statement saying that, that they wouldn't support this, they're they're against it. It was, it, it's potentially could bring uh, a lot more unwanted traffic through the community as people are trying to skirt the traffic on uh, 138 to get, uh, you know, to the Mercier Bridge. And also, the community is also experiencing housing issues, and now now there's a housing development on land that that's Ganongai land, and that's in dispute. So so it was it was something that they didn't want to see happening on Canada Day. A group of of Heronu decided that they were going to start to occupy that land and in a way to prevent it from being developed by. Uh, as for residential use, and this all this parcel also falls within what's traditionally known as the senior Sioux Saint Louis uh, land grievance. So, you know, the, the this is something that both the Mohawk Council of Ganawage and the Mohawk Nation at Ganawage are on the same page about about that this land should not be developed. They're both coming from different sides of the of, of the argument, but uh, it's something that I think that is is going to be an ongoing issue for for at least the next few weeks. Of course, any update on what's happening in the community
0: over the last couple of weeks wouldn't be complete unless we talked about the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I got my second dose earlier this month, or in June rather, and I'm very happy about that. I know that uh, some of my colleagues here did as well. So what's the, uh, the pandemic status
1: right now in the community, Greg? On Friday, July 2nd, the community officially went into the green pandemic alert level. So that's the, ho- uh, the lowest level of pandemic alert uh, within the Canali COVID nineteen task force, their pandemic alert levels. The next level is 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 no more pandemic. That means a lot of things are are either normal or on the verge of becoming normal. You know, starting uh, on Monday, July fifth, the community organizations can begin returning to the office uh, in uh, in a phased in approach, so they're not all working from home. You know, restaurants are 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 now able to uh, have full capacity, uh so long as there's six feet between tables, uh, you know, different things. We're a far cry from uh what we were uh even just two weeks ago and, and and even six weeks ago, right? So yeah, and big picture. It took us so long,
0: it seems, to get here. I mean, we're talking well over a year, right? 15, 16 months of of living through a pandemic. And Mark, I know we've discussed this before. But you were always talking about how the Ganawage COVID nineteen task force uh, took care of Ganawage Ronu throughout
2: the pandemic. So mm-hmm. yeah, I you have to you can I'm I'm an outsider from the community, and I I can I'm blessed with the perspective of seeing both the Quebec government's response to things and Ganawage's response to things, and it's been you know like Ganawage their task force has been how can I put it they've been. The beyond the pale, they've been phenomenal. You you have regular communication with people. You had daily briefings. You you're on K103. They are organized press releases daily, um, very clear instructions as to what you can and cannot do. Instructions in my email inbox day to day. It's it's a it's a far cry from what the Quebec government was sort of letting people just sort of twist in the wind. And from an informational standpoint, I would say I would argue that. Quebec has a lot to learn from the way the Gagnepage Task Force approached this pandemic and their communication skills.
1: Yeah, well, and part of it too was that yes, Gagnepage may have been more conservative uh, in 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 a lot of actions than a lot of people would have liked. People may not have always agreed with some of the uh, directives and 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 what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. But the goal of of the task force throughout the pandemic was to ensure that we didn't have anybody that was severely ill. Uh, we didn't have anybody die and that we protected those most vulnerable uh, as a community and the task force has accomplished that if you look back to to 2008 2009 and the the swine flu pandemic there were community members who were lost to that it would have been devastating too if we had lost community members uh over the last 15 months or so because one of the difficult things uh, was about this is when we lose somebody as people, we couldn't grieve the way we're used to grieving,
2: right? Uh, can't get ga- come together, You, gather, you yeah. can't support one another, you can't be there for each other. It's
1: not human. When there's a, when there's a wake in the community, you know there there's hundreds of people that uh, you know coming together and supporting each other, uh, and that that's not allowed to happen, and you know uh, or wasn't allowed to happen, and you know at some funerals there's only ten people out inside, and you know that's not how we're, we're used to doing things in this community and and i think that that was a real hardship for for a lot of us uh you know who, who lost loved ones over the last uh 15 16 months yeah we're absolutely getting closer and
0: closer to what we we know used to be a normal but you know this pandemic has been has been difficult for the children too with the the schools and uh we've been trying as much as we could to always keep our children active and one great thing that actually happened for our children during this time was the ancestors challenge it was a very unique obstacle course that was set up at the gunawage sports complex in june and
1: and that was i I think it was it was something really cool to see right because uh, we haven't been able to see things like that and there's been no sports up until recently and the FNEC games were canceled, and that's something that you've been covering, right, for the last few years. So, so this was something that naturally we said, "Hey Jordan, this is this is your right in your wheelhouse. Uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's go."
0: Yeah, I was I was actually surprised when the FNEC had announced plans so quickly for something to replace the interschool games this year, because this was the second consecutive year that those particular games had to be canceled. And I think within about two or three days, the FNEC announced that they were going to bring this ancestors challenge to about a dozen indigenous communities in Quebec, which was really exciting. And then um of course we got to actually see the obstacle course all set up. Now the FNEC still hasn't determined yet whether or not the Ancestors Challenge will be traveling once again next year or if it's going to be, become part of the actual interschool game. So it'd be really exciting to see if that actually happens. Yeah,
1: for real. Cause I mean next year if 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 that could come back to the community and parents could go and and watch their 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 kids and you know that would be a really cool atmosphere and really exciting uh, i think to, to do well that was one of the unfortunate things though is that the uh, the parents or people weren't really
0: able to go and watch however they did have the opportunity to try the obstacle course after hours throughout the week and a lot of community members took advantage of that i don't know if you saw anybody out there using the uh The obstacle course afterward but I certainly did
1: yeah you know and then people posting uh on social media saying wow that was pretty tough you know (laughs) you know it was one of those
2: things that felt more normal Mm -hmm. right it's a shared experience that that's those those are the things that have been missing from humanity the last 16 months and just being able to maybe relate one's experience doing something to one to another person helps us get a little bit of that back and I think every little bit that we get back is is hugely important to us as people.
0: And it was very timely to the the date of the uh, Ancestors Challenge coming to the community because of the fact that the kids were almost finished the the school year and a lot of the kids learning from home with uh, home learning programs, remote learning programs, a lot of these kids didn't get to see their classmates until they arrived at the Ancestors Challenge to take part in it together. So it was great to see the the camaraderie of all our young uh, our young students here.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then, and that leads us, I think uh, in, into uh, some of the other things that, that happened this month. Right. And uh, you know, the start of some sports. Yeah. Minor baseball is, uh, is back in full swing. I know as cliche as
0: that sounds, but uh, all of our local Warhawks teams are, are back on the field. Unfortunately though, there was a bit of controversy surrounding the U18 Warhawks recently at a
1: game that you actually covered, Greg. Yeah. It was a couple of weeks ago. The Warhawks were playing, uh, I believe, Soulange and, and, and it was three innings. And it was in the third inning, uh, the Warhawks were up 8-7. Eight, eight, seven. Seven. If anybody knows, if you're familiar with baseball, but the U, U18s, you know, they could really hit the ball. You know, and hit, hit, hit the ball deep. And one player who routinely hits uh, the ball deep uh, was at bat and then and, and really got a good piece of the, the ball. And it just only went over second base. Instead of a double, triple or, or in the field home run, uh, it was a single. And then uh, Jesse Lash, the coach of the team, noticed that the ball sounded differently when it was hit. So we asked the, the umpire to, to check the ball and it turned out it was a T ball, which is a softer ball than a baseball and doesn't fly as well because it's a softer ball. So the, the game was called, the The Warhawks were awarded the win, and a protest was made to the league. Yeah, a protest was made to the league, unfortunately. Uh,
0: it just resulted in a, in a warning to the team, and uh, Warhawks president Terry Stacy said that uh, most likely if it happens again with that particular team, it'll probably be one-game suspension. I mean, he was happy that uh, the local team got the win, but I think maybe he thought that it sh- there should have been a little bit more in that. In that case.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and the only way reason though, why that, that was able to happen was because of the pandemic and the safety, health and safety rules that are in place. You know, in the past, there would be there would be official game balls. And now it's each team uses their own their own game balls. So there's no intermingling of, of germs uh, between teams. Right. Uh, so because of that, you're not sharing the same ball. So you don't know what the other team's using. So if jesse lahash never didn't wasn't able to tell the difference between the sound that, that, that it never would have been discovered right so
0: we have baseball back of course we have the mixed softball league that's been go- continuing throughout the the summer so far we have soccer we have two uh, soccer teams that have hit the field this year mark you were mentioning recently that your your children have gone back to uh playing minor sports uh what difference have you noticed, you know, the fact that they weren't able to
2: participate in sports throughout the pandemic and now they're starting to get back into it. Agreed. Um it's funny, a lot of the different what I'm finding is a lot of the different sports associations are at different levels of readiness. For instance, my son's football team is practicing, they're in equipment, we're ready to go, we're allowed to have contact, we're organized, it's ready to happen. Whereas my son's lacrosse team, on the other hand, has had a number of jamborees and games canceled because they just can't find any opposition. So I I think that minor sports are taking baby steps back to a level of normalcy that we have seen. My daughter's uh, hockey season resumed this weekend with uh, an Eastern Canadian Championships up in Pierrefonds, And uh, she had a blast and it was delightful to have my kids doing their sports that they're so passionate about again. As a parent, nothing makes you happier than seeing your kid happy. So I'm, it's a massive sense of relief, frankly, for me as a person and as a parent, Um, I'm tired of watching my kids suffer and not a lot of concern has been paid to children, adolescents and their needs during these last 16 months. And I'm glad that finally we are paying a little bit more attention to it. And this is another summer that's looking a little different for you, Greg, because normally
0: you're, you're knee deep, if you will, in uh, senior lacrosse <laughs> and junior lacrosse, but um, there's been a lot of cancellations of a lot of major tournaments over the last couple of weeks. So yeah. Are you able to tell us more? Um,
1: Mid May, Lacrosse Canada, formerly known as the Canadian Lacrosse Association, announced the cancellation of nine national championships and then said, "We'll we'll come back at you with some other news in the late, you know, in a couple of weeks." And at the time, the the national championships that that interest the community most. Uh, there was no decisions made. Uh, that's the President's Cup and the Founders Cup. The President's Cup is the Senior B national championships, and the Founders Cup is the Junior B national championships. There was no news, and and you know, but talking with people in the lacrosse community at the Senior B level, uh, I was kind of un- un- under the impression that it was almost going to be impossible to get to get going right. Early June, the Lacrosse Canada announced that the Founders Cup, uh, which the Hunters would be competing for uh, should they win the Ontario Championship uh, was cancelled and that was you know it wasn't really a surprise because in Ontario, uh, the the pandemic level, uh, you know, at the time was was in black. There was nothing being allowed, and uh, as things were were are, are starting to lower, it, 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 you're not going to have teams that are going to be prepared enough to be able to compete, right? Then at the junior, at uh, senior B level, uh, the the Lacrosse Canada a week later or so announced that the Presidents Cup would be cancelled, and again that wasn't a surprise. Uh, the The Presidents Cup is supposed to be Hosted by the Saint Albert Miners in uh, Alberta, which and Saint Albert is is uh, a suburb of Edmonton. At the time, uh, there's there, there's still interprovincial tra- um, interprovincial travel that's non-essential is not permitted. In a typical year, the Presidents Cup has uh, between eight and ten teams coming from uh, BC, Alberta, uh, sometimes Manitoba, sometimes Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, and then. Uh, sometimes Nova Scotia, but also, uh, you know, from the Can-Am League. So, so a team either from Onondaga or Cattaraugus or or Newtown. Uh, so you got t- teams coming from all over the place. It really is a logistical nightmare to, to get done during a pandemic. Plus one point earlier this year, Alberta had a positivity rate higher than, than India. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was... Again, these tournaments are also not cheap to run and with with businesses closed and and businesses suffering from the effects of of the pandemic it's it's really hard to get some some of these sponsorships right so it, it, it was the decision made was made although a difficult one that these national championships had to be canceled and 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 seasons are canceled and you know and, and there's still some possibility of some exhibition games or exhibition tournaments happening at the, at the junior level. Uh, I'm not sure, so sure at the senior level at this point, but I think everybody's concentrating on having a very successful season next year. Yeah, that's right. And over the throughout the pandemic, I should say, it was so
0: hard to find sports stories. So whenever those little stories started trickling in, I know that in the newsroom, we were pretty happy about stuff like that. I, for one, am very excited about getting back to
2: covering sports. Mark, what are you looking forward to covering? I'm looking forward to, I, I love community events. I love covering stuff where a lot of people are together in one place. I love talking to people in those instances. I I love bake sales. I love markets. I love carnivals, fairs. I you know I I'm really disappointed the powwow was was uh, was canceled this year. But I love those things. I love places where lots of people have come, I, that, I feed off that energy, I adore it, and I miss it. And I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to most. I mean, sports, are, I love the sports, I love them, but I'm really looking forward to being amidst people again.
0: We also had a community member, a prominent community member who was featured on a huge platform. Yes. That yes. was uh, Mary 2x Early, who was featured on the homepage of Google Canada, was yes. that correct? yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Are you able to tell us a little bit about the backstory of why her
1: story is so important? So um, for people who don't know, Married to X Early is Gunhoa Gironu who helped change history in, in Canada uh, with the Indian Act. And uh, it was through her work that the Indian Act was amended in 1985, I believe. And Bill C-31 was created because in in the past, if if a non-native woman married a native man under the Indian Act, that woman legally became an Indian and was granted status and and whatnot. If a native woman married a non-native man she lost her status and her children lost status and, and never gained status. And it was very unfair in the way it was, was applied. So, so Bill C 31 uh, helped uh, change that and, and gave, gave women back their, their rights. And it was married to X early whose who's, whose work and activism helped change that. Then this is a story that you've covered. Courtney mentor uh, has made a documentary about, uh, married to Wax early, and actually wrote the the article on the Google homepage that explained uh, the importance of 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 Married to Wax early. Yeah,
0: then uh, that uh, documentary that uh, Courtney was part of that we were talking about was called "I Am Indian Again." And uh, I know she she just recently mentioned to me that she was looking at having it play for Rono in some way or another. She wants to find a a forum that it would just be for for community members to see. So. We should be hearing about more about that relatively soon. Nice. And of course, as the, uh, the weather continues to get better and better, more community members are are spending more and more time outside, of course, and our local uh, sports and recreation unit is involved with two very exciting projects that should be opening really, really soon. The first of which is being a uh, Sesame park. Have you seen some of the work going on around there, Greg? Uh,
1: I haven't passed by there recently, but I mean, they're making a, a sensory park, uh, but there's also going to be some uh, table tennis uh, tables and uh, a mini putt, which is which is pretty cool. And uh, so I'm really excited, uh, you know, for for that to to open and uh, you know it'd be pretty cool. It's see. going to be very different
0: to to see something like that in the community because we don't have too many things like that. For as much as we do have, we don't have anything that's really really like that. And I believe the sports and recreation unit is looking at opening up that park to everybody for july 8th
2: nice that's that's uh, you know it's that's coming you know that's right around the corner now that's one of the cooler things i've heard of honestly i can't i can't remember a lot of municipalities doing parks where mini putt track has been sort of contained within the the project and it's it is very exciting and i have no doubt that children around here are looking very forward to that and I absolutely have
0: to mention the other project yes. that the Sports and Recreation yes. is involved with, which is the new Community Beach, which should be opening soon. There's still no no date as of yet, but if you're able to drive by at some point, you're going to see that there's lifeguard chairs now, and they're starting to bring in some uh, hand-washing stations it looks and really uh, some great. bathrooms on site. So it's looking it's looking really, really exciting. I know that there's still some work to be done in the actual water area because it's very, very rocky. So the Environment Office is addressing that asap i do believe that's going to be a priority before the the beach actually opens but i think it's fantastic that we're going to have our own our own beach here i mean uh, people deserve to have a
1: nice swimming area like that oh yeah for sure and 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 historically that's in the in an area that was you know, used as a beach, and you know Johnson's Beach at one point, uh, and then you go back to before the seaway. Uh, that was the old wharf, and, and and so that in that area, that's 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 been historically been a place used by by the community for swimming. So you know, to see see a beach going there is going to be great. Yeah, certainly mm-hmm. an
0: interesting last couple of weeks, and I'm sure it's going to be a interesting couple of weeks coming up for us as well. So I wanted to just take this time to thank you guys for joining me here today. Yeah, y'all go. Up. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Yawa for listening, Your they would like to thank the Community Media Strategic Support Fund for supporting this initiative.